So here today to talk about Title IX generally and all the different types of things that it covers. Hopefully to dispel, dispel the myth that it's not just about athletics. Hopefully everyone in the room is already there, but just in case. Um, also tell you a little bit about what OCR does, the Office for Civil Rights. So just wanted to read briefly the part of the statute that we're all, everything we're talking about today comes from. So Title IX. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied, the benefits of, or subject to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So any program or activity that gets federal money can't discriminate on the basis of sex. So in my job in the Office for Civil Rights, any program or activity that gets federal money, we can, we can investigate. So this is more than schools. It can include things, well, preschools. It can include jails, educational programs, and institutional correctional facilities. It can include the LSAC for all you law students out there. Uh, federal money, a lot of different programs get federal money. So um, the Office for Civil Rights usually starts an investigation by getting a complaint from a parent or a student. It can be about a K-12 school or a college or university. Pretty much the only school that doesn't get federal money would be parochial schools, K-12. So uh, private colleges, universities, the students that attend them get federal money, so we have jurisdiction to investigate them as well. So a parent or a student would file a complaint uh, alleging most of our complaints are race, sex, or disability related. And then the Office for Civil Rights investigates the complaint. We're a neutral fact finder. We don't represent one side or the other. We collect data from both sides, conduct interviews of both sides, and determine whether or not there's been a violation of the law. So the laws we enforce Title IX, obviously, Title VI, prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race, color, and national origin, the ADA, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and the Age Discrimination Act. So I work in Philadelphia. It's one of the regional offices of the federal government's Office of Civil Rights. There are 12 regional offices. The Philadelphia office investigates complaints in five states. The way it's divided up, so Philly has Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, West Virginia, and Kentucky. So I want to talk for a minute about the types of complaints that we get under Title IX. So sexual assault on college campus, obviously a topic that's been in the news a lot lately. So we, we certainly do get those complaints. It can be anything from a female alleging she was raped on college campus, she was sexually assaulted, she experienced a hostile environment. And then OCR would open a complaint that the university failed to discriminate on the basis of her sex when it failed to promptly and equitably respond to the complaint. I'm using an example of the university, but this also applies to K-12. So districts, school districts, have the same obligation as universities under Title IX. It can be a male alleging that he was sexually assaulted. It can be a male or a female alleging that they were not given due process, that, that they were not properly afforded their rights in, in the school's investigation. So the accused can file a complaint. So even before schools get a complaint, Title IX obligates schools to do lots of different things. They have to have a Title IX coordinator. This is, again applies to K-12 as well. The coordinator is the person who's in charge of the training for the, for, the, for the institution. So making sure that the employees are trained, students are trained, that there's a policy in place, it's disseminated, published, updated, that there are grievance procedures. So the Title IX grievance procedures is all different kinds of things that OCR looks for. We look to make sure that students know where to file a complaint, that it applies to third-party actions. 
that there's a process for complaints to be heard, that people are given adequate, reliable, and impartial investigation, that there's written findings as a result of the outcome of the complaint, there's appeal process, and that all this is done in a timely manner. We usually look for some sort of time frame for these things. Other types of complaints we get include hostile environment based on sex. So this could be a sexual comment, doesn't have to be touching. It can be um, different treatment based on sex. So it, it can occur in the classroom, it can occur on the bus, it can occur on a field trip, it can occur on the athletic field, it can occur in admissions, housing, financial aid, any different treatment based on sex. So um, we get complaints that males are discriminated against because they're disciplined more than females. Um, I investigated a complaint where the allegation was that teacher, the particular teacher was only letting females use the restroom, not males. I mean, it's, it can be a wide variety of any, anything based on sex. It can be a discriminatory impact based on sex. There could be an all-girls public high school where that offers a certain program that's not offered by any other high school in the district. So there could be a mother of a male high school student who files a discriminatory, discriminatory impact complaint. We certainly do get our fair share of athletic complaints, so the softball field is not as nice as the baseball field. Um, the girls team doesn't play at 7 o'clock on Friday night, and only the football team plays then. There's all different types of things that we look at in an athletic complaint. We'll look at the, the facilities, are they comparable? The practice facilities, the playing facilities, do the girls have to drive 20 minutes away? Um, the different coaching, the travel budget, publicity, um, the, the athletic interests and, and, and opportunities for the students. So we'll get might get a complaint that there is a girls volleyball team, but not a men volleyball team. There's an unmet interest um, for the for the male students for the schools not fulfilling that athletic interest. And finally, I wanted to talk about some emerging issues, some different things I see that are, are um, kind of more coming to the forefront and could be on our radar more in the future. One of which would be the idea of student athletes as employees. So this would have all different kinds of effects on our Title IX athletic compliance, all the different things that I mentioned, the coaching, publicity, facilities. So if, if student athletes are treated as employees, you can just imagine, you know, what if they get hurt? Is that a workers' comp claim on the field? Um, are schools going to be paying them money to go to school there? How will that affect, you know, because we look at athletic financial assistance. Are schools giving substantially proportional scholarships to men and females, to, to men and women <coughs> to attend? Um, so the reason why I mentioned that student athletes as employees is an idea that, that might, we might talk about more. Uh, in 2014, Northwestern football players filed a petition to unionize before the LRB. And one of the regional directors agreed with them that they were employees, that they spent more time as athletes than as students, that the school first saw them as athletes before students, that they were compensated because they got a large scholarship to attend. But the LRB board declined to exercise jurisdiction. Uh, one of the reasons was to maintain labor stability. So kind of wondering if we're going to hear about that again. Uh, another case, O'Bannon versus NCIA. This was a former a uh, group of former football and basketball players sued the NCAA, alleging that the NCAA rules violated the Sherman Antitrust Act. So alleging that the, the NCAA rules prohibited them from using their name, Im image, and likeness while they were students. So the lower court agreed with them. 
that NCA rules did violate the, the, the Sherman Antitrust Act. The lower court even talked about setting up a trust. So during the um, time that the student athletes were attending college, up to $5,000 could be put aside per year, per athlete, for their use when they graduated. The appellate court reversed that, didn't agree that that money, it wasn't closely tied enough to the educational expenses, so the appellate court uh, did not uphold that, but it did uphold that the NCAA rules violated the Sherman Antitrust Act. So kind of waiting to see whether the NCAA appeals that, but an interesting decision. And I want to touch on transgender issues, we're going to talk about that more, but um, Title OCR interprets Title IX broadly, so on the basis of sex to include things like gender nonconformity, so discriminating on the basis of someone who's not conforming to gender norms. Um, not homosexuality in and of itself, that would not be sufficient for us to open a complaint, but anything, um, any other type of discrimination that, that might, uh, I guess, how do, how do you say it? Um, <laughs> that, that might be related to that, so dealing with gender identity and gender norms. So OCR recently resolved a case outside of Chicago where a school district um, wasn't letting a female student change in the female locker room. So, this student was born male, had transitioned to female, and was a female, known, known to be female by the district. Um, in, enrollment records used female pronouns. The district considered her female in every sense of the word, except was not letting her use the female locker room. So they had a PE locker room, a swimming locker room, and her sports team had a locker room. And she had to use the locker room down the hall and change by herself. So she alleged that this was sex discrimination. She was missing out on what was happening in the locker room. She was missing out on um, the, the team talk and all the different things that were going on for PE. The locker room was usually locked. She had, so it took her longer to change. Um, so OCR found that this was a violation of the law and the, the district agreed to put up curtains to change in the locker room. So she agreed to use the curtains and, and they put them in all three of the locker rooms and um, the, the PE, swimming, and her sports team. So, and they put more than one curtain in in case other people wanted to use them as well. So that was, um, happened, I guess, last fall, last November, um, fairly recent. And another idea which I only recently thought of in the last couple months is, as far as hitting my radar, but something that it just goes to show that Title IX is always changing, the idea of a religious exemption under Title IX. So I always knew it was there, but it never, now it's becoming used more, I guess, since transgender issues are really coming to the forefront. So. Title IX um, colleges and universities can apply to the department for a religious exemption, such that they would not have to file follow Title IX if they claim that uh, Title IX doing so would violate their religious beliefs. So uh, universities are doing that more and more, and um, OCR has recently said we're going to put out a list. So you can look for that, I guess. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Barry. Okay. So. Um, I sort of have these two wonderful people on either side of me who are gonna provide you context for lots of things, and I'm gonna get kind of nitty-gritty and specific um, about the trans community in particular. Um, we're gonna start with actually talking about um, what it means to be transgender, and particularly what that means for young people. Um, I think we sometimes have some very medical connotations that come with that word, and when we're talking particularly about folks under the age of 18, we wanna be careful with that. And we wanna think about our accommodations of people as being broad enough that they can extend to someone who may identify as transgender at five years old, right, because Title IX is going to cover them, as well as someone who's going to identify that way at 24 or 25 in a college setting. So it's really important that we have a clear understanding of 
um, the identity context that we're working in, I think, when we're talking about trans inclusion in Title IX. Um, and I think, we, you know, we'll also get to a little bit of case law and the fact that I think actually this, this piece of expansion that the federal government is doing a wonderful job with is a little misunderstood in the courts as of right now, um, but, but hopefully we'll get there. Um, so let's start by talking about what it means um, for someone to be transgender. Uh, I will say this, I work with a lot of very young clients and this word is being used in new ways all the time. Um, my clients teach me about their identity, about their gender, about new and different ways that folks are talking about themselves, probably on a weekly basis. I'm sort of amazed um, at how fast this is changing and how differently folks are relating to themselves and their own identity, just consistently. Um, so what I will say is, if someone, you know, says, I'm transgender, the first question is, what does that mean to you? Right? We have to be careful not to assume we know what other people are telling us. In the same way that if someone were to say, I'm a woman, there's, only, there's not only one way right, to be a woman. We know this. Feminism has taught us this. So there's not only one way to have any identity. So we want to start from that place. So what transgender can mean across the board is that someone's gender identity is not the same as their assigned sex at birth. So when we think about assigned sex, we want to think about what happens when a child is actually born, right? We have this very scientific process of assigning sex that goes something like this, <laughs> right? And then we write something out on a piece of paper. An infant can't tell us anything about their identity, um, and we don't actually do anything like chromosomal testing or hormonal testing or any of the other things that we know are actual biological precursors for sex. We just kind of take a look, and we make that decision. Um, and that's why we use the words assigned sex, because that was something, and it was an identity that was assigned to someone when they were born. Um, as people get a little bit older, as they can talk to us, and I will tell you, I have clients as little as two and a half who can tell you that they are not the sex they were assigned. As soon as they start talking, some of these youngsters can really be clear about this. Um, you know, the unfortunate reality is that those, those young people are often dealing with very significant body dysphoria, and that's why they have that clarity, so that can be a very painful thing for them. But we're seeing young people, ugh, I mean, just so little, who are able to really articulate this to us. And so it's important that all of their environments can kind of support them and, and get on board. Um, so gender is how, how we see ourselves, how we think about ourselves, who we are, right? It is our identity. Um, you know, and for, I think, the longest time, because we didn't have language, folks didn't have a, an appreciation that that could be different than what our biological sex was, that, that there was some, some possibility of a difference. We're having, we have more language now, and we have, you know, more ways to express this. So just keep in mind that sort of assigned sex is kind of birth certificate sex, and it was determined by someone who didn't ask, right? Didn't actually seek that information about somebody. And gender identity is what someone expresses, what someone's telling us, who they are, right? So the other thing I wanted to spell right off the bat is that in order to be transgender, you have to have had some kind of medical intervention. And that's really important, especially with our two and a half year olds, right? Our five year olds, our little, little ones. Um, someone who has not hit biological puberty does not need any medical intervention. <coughs> Transgender youngsters under the age of, you know, 11, 12, wherever, wherever pu puberty is going to show up for them, they're not receiving hormone therapy. There's no surgery that is necessary. None of that, right? We have no secondary sex characteristics until we're bigger. And so these are little ones who are transitioning, what we call socially transitioning. So whether it's a little girl who's growing her hair out and using a female name. Um, right? It's all about their environment and how we're treating them. So 
I know that there's sort of this focus on um, transition being a medical process, and especially for attorneys, right? Because we need evidence of everything. We need to have a, an expert tell us this is who this person is, or we need, you know, sort of corroboration of whatever someone's saying. But with young people, we want to be careful about those assumptions. You know, we want to sort of ask and believe someone when they tell us. Um, so the other thing to keep in mind is that medical intervention may not be appropriate. It may not also not be available. So a lot of these claims that we see um, in my office, because I work primarily with low-income folks, people don't have access to proper health insurance, which might cover these treatments, um, or really just the money out of pocket. Um, so we want to keep in mind that medical piece is also about access and, and not only about age or about what someone may or may not want for themselves. Um, now, now that we're all really confused, we can talk about legal gender designations um, to be even more confusing. So legal gender is something that is determined by each agency that issues a piece of identification. You heard me right, they all have a different standard. Um, your driver's license, uh, your gender marker on your driver's license, the M or F that's on your driver's license, uh, is changed under a different standard than your social security card is changed, under a different standard than a birth certificate is changed, and guess what, it's also different state to state. So I can't give you a good legal standard for gender, making this even more complicated. Um, in Pennsylvania, I will tell you that driver's license can be changed without any kind of medical intervention, and it's just about the gender that the person is living in full time. Um, passport and social security also can be changed uh, with essentially a doctor's note saying this person has transitioned appropriately for that. Um, so I often have clients come in and hand me documents and they all say something different, right? So when I then go to a school and say, well, this person is clearly female, male, whatever, you know, whatever however they identify, it gets a little complicated. It gets a little complicated to try and line all of that up. Um, our law hasn't quite caught up to where gender has developed to at this point. Um, and so we have to be flexible as practitioners and kind of make space for that. Um, I will say birth certificates in Pennsylvania require uh, surgery in order to change them. So for what that's worth, that is one of the ones that still has a very high bar medically. Um, but I think, so I was I sort of, as I was listening to Sarah, there were so many different things that I was like, oh, I wanna talk about this, I wanna talk about this, there's so many exciting things going on. Um, but one of the things I wanna point out is that these standards for legal gender and for the notion of gender are changing everywhere. I don't know if anyone in here saw, but maybe being a bunch of Title IX nerds, you're paying attention to these things. Um, but the Olympic Committee recently decided that a person only needs to be on hormone therapy for a year and that uh, genital surgery is no longer a requirement to be considered um, competitive in a particular gender category. Um, so really, medicine and science is outpacing us, right? As lawyers, we kind of, we gotta, we gotta catch up. We gotta start moving in the right direction with these laws um, because we kind of know that this is how gender works and we are not yet able to offer the full breadth of protections to folks on that basis. So that's a little bit about gender. I just think it's helpful to, to start from there. Um, so we do have what I'd like to call the beginning of a new definition of sex discrimination. We're seeing that come up in lots of contexts. Um, discrimination on the basis of sex, traditionally, right, was about protecting women from discrimination based on the fact that they were female and that they were women. Um, it was the idea that men and women needed to be treated equally. So what we are uncovering, um, and you know, particularly in, in federal guidance um, and at commissions, is that discrimination on the basis of sex includes transgender people, but that's part of, of what's going on there. Um, we're beginning to understand this sort of by extension or by analogy, and we were talking about this uh, recently on our conference call for this panel, but I think the best 
example that I've heard so far, um, Heifeldblum from the EEOC regularly talks about the fact that transgender people are included in sex discrimination for the same reason that religious conversion is included in religious discrimination, right? So let me just explain that. Um, if a person were to come to work um, wearing a Star of David, who's a Jewish person, their coworkers knew they were Jewish. Um, they were hired for the job, they're good at their job, they're qualified for their job. And the next week they came in and they said, I've converted and I'm Catholic now. And their boss said, well, you're fired. Get out, right? That's religious discrimination. That's completely illegal, it's inappropriate. Similarly, if someone were to come in and say, I'm a woman, I'm good at my job, here I am, qualified, right, one week, and then the next week, that person were to come in and say, I've transitioned to male, and I'm a man now. Limiting their access to facilities, treating them differently, any of those things would similarly be discrimination on the basis of sex. So we really are at this point where many scholars understand this as per se discrimination. We don't need sex stereotyping, we don't need sort of all of these other um, you know, kind of verbal gymnastics that we've done in the past with uh, discrimination law. Um, we really are, are seeing this as per se. So the EEOC absolutely applies this theory pretty regularly. Um, we're seeing it a lot in, in other places. Uh, you know, we're seeing it in the ACA, right? We see in the healthcare context that there's, you know, we're really seeking to end discrimination on the basis of sex, including transgender people. Um, we're seeing a lot of regulatory changes. Now HUD has, has regulations about gender identity. Um, Medicare is now actually covering gender transition surgeries for people. Um, and you know, insurance commissioners in about 12 different states have now made it illegal for insurance to exclude this kind of care from their plans. So we're seeing a lot of movement on this particular issue. Um, and, and, and hopefully, 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 all the states want to follow um, the Department of Education in extending those protections to people in schools under Title IX. Um, context. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what's happening with Title IX in Pennsylvania. I will say this is a, a bit of a depressing conversation, unfortunately, right now. Um, let me start by saying that I am a direct services provider, so I'm a problem solver. Um, I do some writing when I can, right? <laughs> when I have time, when I don't have clients coming out of my ears. But first and foremost, my job is to actually make these things available to my clients. And so I have a very concrete approach to this. Um, and I will tell you that I have yet to find a case where I felt safe engaging in Title IX litigation. Um, we really are just not, we don't have a sea change yet, and we recently found some, some pretty bad case precedent um, in Pennsylvania. So we're gonna talk a little bit about the Johnston case. So Johnston v. University of Pittsburgh is a case that recently came out of the Western District um, and in this case, we have a trans man, so someone who was assigned female at birth but has transitioned to male. Um, he applied to the university as female. Uh, he transitioned while at university. He changed his name, changed all of his documents, um, license, social security, passport, birth certificate, everything, um, and was using male facilities on campus, bathrooms, locker rooms, all that kind of thing. Uh, he then, for some reason, was sort of uh, caught using the male locker room while he was using the gym and uh, told not to. Um, not, to be, not to be dissuaded, Mr. Johnston continued to use the male facilities because that's where he felt most comfortable. Um, and he actually felt sincerely uncomfortable walking into the women's facilities given his presentation and who he was, right? He really felt as if he was going to make the women in the women's locker room very, very uncomfortable, or make it an unusable facility for others. 
Um, he was uh, offered a, a sort of, again, this sort of gender neutral kind of facility um, that, you know, was much farther away, made it very difficult for him to actually attend this weightlifting class, which is the reason why he was using the locker room. Um, and so ultimately, he decided, and, and he's, he's quite the brave one, he brought this case on his own. He filed this on his own, and somebody picked it up after the fact. So he's, you know, he's, he's, pretty, he's pretty courageous. Um, and so they went to court, and the judge was sort of like, well, I, I don't see any reason why this is sex discrimination. You were given a separate facility that you could use. What's wrong? What's the problem? So we don't have as clear an understanding of sex uh, in the Title IX context as we would like yet. Um, that case is on appeal, and like I said, I think we have a lot of support, um, both from the federal government and, and in other places for this change to happen. Um, but in Pennsylvania right now, it hasn't yet. And uh, I think, I hate that this is what I have to say, but what I tell people regularly is, if you have a situation like this, please come talk to me. <laughs> I don't want people running into court with these. I think we have more um, risk of creating bad precedent right now, more bad precedent that we're gonna have to undo over time um, than we do of really getting a big win. That said, I have found that I never need to litigate, right? So I tell you, I've never litigated anything under Title IX. I've also never had a client not get the accommodation that they need from the facility. So, when I say that educators are open to and want to provide an appropriate environment for people, I tell you that from experience. I, you know, my, my five-year-old client who was, you know, will let you know she's a girl, will tell you who she is, she has access to the appropriate bathrooms. They use a preferred name with her so that they're not using a legal name which would out her to her classmates or cause a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, her school is entirely supportive. Really what they needed from me was a little education. Right, so my sense is that the most important thing we can be doing is filing with OCR, right? So that they know kind of the volume of, of the problem and so they can address it. Um, and I have found actually filing with OCR to be a, a very effective, um, the stick or the carrot? It's probably the stick, right? Um, filing with OCR will really kind of light a fire under a school district and, and cause them to find a solution. Um, and I think one of Sarah's points that I really want to echo is that these solutions don't have to just benefit trans students. There are many students who benefit from increased access to modesty in locker rooms, right? That curtain could be used for a student who has religious reasons why he or she may not want to be changing in front of their, their colleagues. Um, there are sort of lots of ways that these solutions can kind of meet many different needs. And so I always suggest that people actually talk to the school um, before sort of rushing into court, because I think actually educators understand better what these young people need uh, than the courts do at this point, because the educators are the ones with the, with the students. Um, so I have no idea how long I've been talking, but um, that's a little bit on gender, um, on Title IX, uh, and, and maybe it's, it's not a wonderful state in Pennsylvania at the moment, um, and I'm happy to answer any questions when everyone else is done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Josh? Thanks very much. Um, I just want to give a quick thank you to John Bogan, who an uh, illustrious alum of your, of your law school, and my colleague at, at Franklin Kirschenbaum, who helped me a lot um, with some research before coming here today. So thanks, John. Um, I am coming from the perspective of someone in the private bar um, who, who has litigated a Title IX, a couple of Title IX cases, and one in particular that I'd like to talk about. 
Um, my firm represents students, so students of all ages, um, children and adult students. And we see, most of the cases that we deal with are educational cases related to special education, but uh, increasingly, uh, more and more cases that raise or implicate Title IX. And the context that we see it in is not so much on the uh, accommodation side, but we occasionally, occasionally see that. Uh, it's much more common on the bullying and harassment side, so what you might call hostile environment type claims. Um, this area has gotten a lot of attention lately, um, and when I say lately, um, I mean since the early 2000s, mostly, although there are some really important seminal cases, even Supreme Court cases, that implicate this from the late 90s. Um, and, but as, as both said, and I think it is undoubtedly true, the, the courts are years and years and years, decades, generations behind um, in their understanding of this uh, than we are as just everyday people um, who, are, who are not courts. Um, this, this makes Title IX a really, really interesting area to litigate because the, this is sort of what you get when you have a, a construct, gender, sex, now Title VII you have race, you have religion, you could think of these things, and you have to think of these things when you're litigating them. At the end of the day, these are human-created concepts. We don't think about them. Uh, they're so ingrained. They're so almost uh, subconscious for us. Um, but we have to remember that these are, these are concepts and constructs that are sort of loosely created by people and that are rarely, rarely defined and examined so closely that we can really honestly say we understand what they are. And what's happened lately is that gender and sex have become much, much more discussed, much, much more examined um, in thanks, I would say, probably mostly to the feminist movement and also the LGBT rights movement because that has brought to the public discussion um, what is sex, what is gender, what are these things. And this is, this is not just uh, you know, philosophical musings. This becomes front and center important when you're dealing with Title IX litigation. So, because it prohibits discrimination based on sex. Well, what does that mean? Um, that's the first question you sort of have to ask yourself as a lawyer or a law student who's, who's trying to issue spot this question, right, on, on the law school exam. Um, is this even uh, actionable under Title IX, what's going on here? So I want to tell you about this case that we had, which I think um, is a really good example of how uh, the society's understanding of what sex and sexuality is changes the law, and what the law's understanding of what sex and sexuality is can change society. It's a two-way street. So uh, early on in our, in our firm's life, we were uh, approached by a family who had, has a, a daughter um, who was at the time in, in middle school. And they came to us because their daughter had been bullied um, relentlessly by some other girls. And the nature of the bullying was that the, their daughter had a yeast infection. And when she had the yeast infection, she was uncomfortable and squirming and occasionally scratching her vaginal area. Some other kids noticed this and started teasing her about it. They would make uh, the scratching sound whenever, you know, that kind of thing, whenever she would walk by um, and laugh and things like that. 
And it got worse and worse and worse to the point where the, the girl stopped wanting to go to school, was severely depressed, things like this. And she had been essentially outcast by her peers. Um, I had the good fortune early on in the case to actually meet the, the daughter and to talk to her, um, which incidentally can't be an easy thing for uh, you know, a seventh grade girl to do, to sit there and talk with some strange guy about her yeast infection from, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. And by the way, footnote, that in and of itself is a very, very, very important part about understanding this in the real world, real practice, which is these cases deal with very sensitive, personal, embarrassing, um, some often humiliating things that people don't want to talk about. And if, if it's hard to talk about with your lawyer in a conference room, you can imagine um, the thought of actually being deposed about something like this, let alone being up in a, in a courtroom about it, undoubtedly deters a lot of people from even wanting to litigate stuff like this. And, and like you, I view myself as a problem solver. I'm not going into, when I first meet a client, thinking, let's litigate this case, particularly when you're dealing with a, you know, a seventh grader who has much better things to do with her life than to be uh, deposed about her, her, her genitals. Um, so, what, uh, what came out of this story, which is something that I think is really important when considering Title IX litigation, is I needed to know more about what was going on with this bullying because I knew um, that I needed, I probably needed more than that. I wasn't sure whether being teased because of a yeast infection and because of the fact that it was related to genitals, female genitals, was going to be enough to convince a judge or, uh, that, as a matter of law, that was harassment based on sex. Even though, uh, I mean, I, I don't actually even know if boys can get yeast infections. I assume maybe they can. Um, but this is definitely something that we normally associate with, with females. And she was being teased about uh, her genitals. Is that discrimination based on sex? Well, as you rightly pointed out, um, you don't want to, even under the best facts, going into Title IX litigation is a very dicey proposition. It's a very, very, very hard area of law to litigate and win um, because you don't know what judge you're going to draw. You have no idea whether that judge is going to buy into the notions of bullying alone, let alone ones based on sex. Um, so I asked her more questions. What were they saying? Did they say anything else? Was there any other kind of bullying that was going on? And that's when I learned that it was more than the scratching sound that they were doing. They were calling her names. What names? She first didn't want to tell me. And I said, that's, that's okay. Could, you know, you, you, would you be more comfortable telling your parents? She finally said, all right, I, I will tell you, but they're not nice words. And I said, that's okay. You can say whatever you want here. Um, so what were they calling you? They were calling her a bitch, a whore, a slut, a skank. Okay, so that, and these were girls doing this to a girl. There were no boys involved in this, interestingly enough. So that, now I remembered enough about cases that I had read, bullying cases and things like that, to know that that sort of thing, when the names, when the words that are used are gender specific, sexualized, sexual, we are now on much more solid ground for Title IX litigation. Frankly, because you don't, nobody calls boys, well, I wouldn't say nobody, but most people, even most judges, though not all, understand 
that certain words are gender specific. They are used only really against people that are perceived to be particular sex or gender. And certainly the ones that I just said are among them. By the way, try to find ones that are only used for boys that are sexualized. Good luck with that. Um, the interesting thing here was that now I had a lot of sexualized terms, something having to do with female genitals, and a kid who was, that this has been going on for a very long time. And that was the other key thing. It couldn't just, I knew that this couldn't just be a one-off thing that happened. It had to be going on for a long time. Why? Because this litigation, this area of law grows out of hostile environment litigation. And that has to be severe and pervasive. And if you look at the definitions of bullying now that are coming, they adopt that idea of severe and pervasive. It has to go on for a long time, and it has to be really, really bad. Okay, well, it had gone on for months. Uh, it's starting to be more like a law school exam, right? And why couldn't it be years, right? You know, we know years is definitely a long time. Days is not, well, months, great. This is gonna be hard. Well, but it was months, and I figured months is better than weeks, um, better than days, better than hours. I'm going with it. So the other thing was, I had to show that the school district officials knew about this and that they were deliberately indifferent to it. Which is probably to me the most interesting and fascinating part about Title IX litigation, which is that at the end of the day, it really isn't in the harassment and, and bullying context, it's really not about so much what the kids are doing to each other and, and their intent. It's about what the, the adults knew and what they did or didn't do about it. And that is, a, that is probably the most significant piece of any Title IX litigation is what did the district know, who knew, what did they know, how long did they know, and what did they do about it? Because you see it throughout all of the court cases, there's clearly a struggle, a tension between wanting to eradicate hostile environments, but at the same time, not wanting to open up the floodgates so wide because it's really difficult for schools to put an end to this when it's going on because it happens, oftentimes they don't know it, oftentimes, um, and this I think is probably something we can talk about more, oftentimes they don't view it as being sexual harassment because they have a very different understanding. Many people, if they just knew about the yeast infection, would never think Title IX, would never pop into their minds. Lawyers might not even think about it. I'm crazy, so I thought about it. Um, so the, the idea that you have to be able to show that a, the district knew and failed to take reasonable steps to deal with it um, means that I have to advise people who call me who are in the midst of these problems. I have to ask them, did you notify anybody? Who did you notify? Did you do it in writing? Well, why am I asking that? Well, because the Supreme Court basically said in Gebser that if you don't essentially write it out in a letter in specific detail about what is going on and make it very, 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 very clear that this is sexual, is being experienced as sexual and sexualized, you're not gonna be able to sustain your case. You're gonna lose on a motion to dismiss. You're not even gonna get, they're not even gonna answer the complaint. So basically, I needed to know that there was a, now, of course, parents don't know this. They're not thinking, aha, my child is being sexually harassed. I must write a Gebser letter. No, they, they don't know any of that, and so oftentimes, they said, well, we did say that you know, she was being teased and bullied. Oh, did you tell them what was happening? Well, no, we just said that these kids were being really mean to her. Well, oftentimes there's lots of very legitimate reasons why a parent might not say, um, there are other students that are making fun of my 
child sexuality or something like that. There could be all sorts of reasons why they don't explicitly make it clear to the officials in the school the nature of what is going on. And the failure to do that could be the end of their case before it even starts. So we have to not only advise people to tell someone in authority what is going on, but the nature of what is going on, and that it is sexual. And then finally, we have to show that the steps that the district took, or didn't take, that the district took were not reasonable. There, you know, you could, I mean, how much of law school is just talking about what is reasonable, what is not reasonable, really? It's incredible, right? Um, is it, were the steps that they took, that doesn't mean, by the way, that the district has to have put an end to the bullying. What they had to do is take steps that were reasonable to do, it, to do away with the bullying. What the courts seem to have come to on this one is, if they try something to make it stop, and it stops it, it was reasonable. If they try something and it doesn't stop it, and they don't do anything to try something else, and they just let it keep going on, that is not reasonable. So far, so good. Um, then you get all of these other cases where they try something and it sort of stops some of it, but not all of it. For example, you have multiple kids being bullied by somebody or some other people. The school district intervenes, you know, breaks knees, suspends kids, gives them the riot act, and three of the four bullies stop what they're doing, but one of them doesn't. Well, courts have held that if the district doesn't then take additional steps to make that bully stop, that's not reasonable. And if the nature of the bullying was sexual, that could be hostile environment. So the, the beautiful thing is that the courts are being forced to confront these issues because people are bringing the cases. Now, honestly, we don't know most of the cases because most of the cases probably settle, right? And, we, and most of the settlements are, are private and, and no one hears about them. So we only know what comes out in the, in the decisions and what you can scrounge around and find. And John actually found quite a lot, actually, of settlements that are out there so we can see what the result of this is. And what's pretty clear is that Title IX is working well in this area to make school districts worried enough about this that they're really trying to do something about it. So even though it's really hard to actually bring litigation and it's really hard to win these cases or get enormous verdicts as a result of them, the threat is real. The school districts do seem to understand that there are severe implications for, for being blind to these sorts of things in their school or to not be taking very aggressive steps to try to stop it, and that's good. The other good thing is that it has forced us to really talk about you know, what is sexual, in what ways are kids and, and adults using sex and gender as a way to create hostility? Sexualized hostility, which is really the way I think about it, is, is sexualized hostility. Um, that makes this an ever-changing and ever-evolving area of law. And so that in, at, down the road, as judges retire and younger people come in and move their way up, people who grew up in this generation, these generations become judges, it is going to change the landscape of this law even more as their law clerks become more and more the people that are you know, going to law school now and, and grew up in this environment that we're in right now where um, sort of very, very uh, contemporary progressive views on, on sex and sexuality, it's going to completely change the law as well. Um, I will end by just pointing out that even today, when we were, when we were researching uh, for this case, uh, the 
range of decisions that we saw nationally from judges in federal courts about what constitutes sexual harassment in the bullying context is staggering. Um, there was one judge, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I, I'm going to just tell you what the judge said. You can go look this up on Westlaw Lexus if you want. But there was one judge that actually seriously um, said that there's nothing sexual or sexualized about calling someone a whore. It's just an insult. And simply would not recognize that. Now, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, it, what, what is amazing is not so much that. I, I actually think what's amazing is that we're living in a time where most of, most of us reading something like that would go like this. Wow. It's not that long ago, uh, undoubtedly, and perhaps in many, many places, many people, who wouldn't be stunned or shocked by something like that. That shows you, um, I think, how, how, how much things have changed and how little changes like that about whether or not words, derogatory words, are sexual, sexualized, offensive, as that changes, as our language changes, as our culture changes, the law will slowly catch up. So the work that, that you're doing is uh, incredibly important. I would, um, I understand the idea that you know you don't want to encourage people to bring these cases, but I because you don't want to create bad law and you don't want to put people through that. I just hope that um, the, I, I just hope this work you're doing with transgender people is so incredibly important to Title IX litigation because it gets at the very question of what is sex and what is gender.
to her, to my 13-year-old. Um, and I tried to explain to her that it's this facially neutral rule that doesn't say necessarily anything about girls can do this or boys can do this, but it's in the application, the enforcement, and the discipline that's having a greater impact on girls than boys. And she sort of nodded along with it, um, but, but she's, she was with me. Um, there's a lot of talk in the media about how this enforcement and discipline of dress codes is disparate impact and oh it would be a violation of Title IX and I thought well is it actually a violation of Title IX. Um, Professor Chanson would like me to point out here that it's not at all clear that this dress would meet dress code um, in the little graphic we have. I think given the variety of topics that we've have already talked about and we'll talk about later, dress codes can seem frivolous. Why are we worried about dress codes to some people? And I think Barrett maybe put it best. When we're talking about, you know, what does transgender mean to you? Or what does being female mean to you? What does being male mean to you? It's about who we are. It's about how we want to present ourselves. Um, and especially for middle school and high school students at a very important time in their lives. And when we tell the girls in this particular fact scenario, you need to change the way you look because you're distracting the boys and we absolve them of responsibility, it's not too many dots to connect that message to the panel we're gonna have on sexual assault later. So I think it's a message that we, if the schools start sending now to the younger students, it can help with some of the other issues. Um, I also think it's a place where, as Josh said, you know, society's understanding is, is running ahead of the courts. And so I think um, what I've tried to do is explain to various principals, you really, really, it can't be about distracting the courts. And just talk to them, and then maybe we can you know, come up with a better plan. So what are these dress codes? Um, and I know it's, it, oh look, it's teeny tiny because it's very long and complicated. Um, but the ones that I want to focus on, so the length of shirts and blouses um, must be below the belt level. Uh, shorts, skirts, and dresses have to be fingertipped length. Which means people, does anyone, anyone hanging out with middle school kids, high school kids? They get up in the morning and they go like this. Is my dress So they've changed it at our school to mid-thigh, okay? Your dress has to be mid-thigh. My oldest daughter has legs that start right about below her ears and go on forever. So her mid-thigh looks like she's showing too much, too much leg, nodding the tall person in front of me. Um, no uh, see-through tops, bare midriffs, strapless, low-cut clothing, clothing with slits, tops or outfits that provide minimum coverage. The other one highlighted in red, no spaghetti straps, halter tops, racerback, tank tops, muscle shirts, or low-cut tops. Sleeves must be three inches wide and cover the shoulder. So um, what particularly made my head explode is last year when my eight-year-old put on a tank top and went like this <laughs> to make sure her straps were wide enough. It has to be three finger tips wide. Um, okay, so the other thing, and it's not in this particular dress code, is um, you must not wear anything that's uh, distracting or will disrupt the educational process. And sometimes 
that's more aimed at messages on shirts, right? Particular things that students are wearing. But disrupt or distract is extremely vague, and that this is when we have this impact in enforcement. Okay. So those are some of our examples. So dress codes under Title VII. Courts look to Title VII, the anti-discrimination employment statute, and how they interpret Title IX. Generally under Title VII, at least until very recently, you know, sex-specific grooming and dress codes don't violate the statute. They're not considered facially discriminatory. They're not something we're going to uh, provide redress for under the statute. Things like women can have long hair and wear makeup, men's hair has to be above the collar, no makeup for you, or particular uh, jewelry and what you can wear. Unless, recently, the requirements impose a greater burden on one sex over the other, or in some courts, the dress code is intended to be sexually provocative, or it's intended to stereotype women as sex objects or with subject women to sexual harassment. Okay, but pretty limited to challenge dress codes under Title VII. Dress codes under Title IX, there had been a regulation um, which was revoked which prohibits the discrimination and application in codes of personal appearance. So that was there and it's been revoked. And we all know courts like to do different things with, well, it's silence, which apparently can mean many things. Or it was there and it's been revoked, which can mean many things, depending on what we want it to mean. But there are still claims made under Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause. So there are plenty of cases about what you get to wear and how you look in schools under the First Amendment. Right, and we're not, I'm setting those aside, and I'm setting equal protection clause aside, okay? Because that's another, another avenue as well. So what types of claims are there? Um, disparate treatment claims under Title IX, where an individual says you're treating me differently because I, I um, identify as female, right? I identify as male. Um, just an individual, they're systemic, you're treating a whole class in a disadvantageous way, and disparate impact. There's also harassment, right, which Josh has talked about, um, and there's retaliation claims as well under Title IX. So let's talk about some disparate treatment claims. So, 1979. Um, the complaint alleged that the dress code was promulgated by the defendants, discriminated against female students on the basis of sex because it had been interpreted to prohibit girls but not boys from wearing blue jeans in school. Blue jeans, I, you can tell what year it's from because it's blue jeans, right? Blue jeans in school, okay? An um, another case, members of the boys basketball team were not allowed to have long hair, but it didn't apply to the girls team. This is just two years ago. And the court found that the hair length policy that applied only to the boys' teams with no evidence concerning comparable grooming standards, right? There's no standard like that for the girls' team, okay? Um, the discrimination has to be intentional. So that we're not impact yet. We're talking about intent, disparate treatment, intent. The, script, they, the court said the discrimination takes the form of a school policy. The policy was instigated by the coach, and he did so pursuant to authority delegated to him. You're the coach. You decide for your team. 
the intent to discriminate is attributable to the school district on this difference in hair length. A lot of the Title VII cases about dress codes and grooming standards are about hair length from the 70s. They're all, the male employees are mad, they can't have long hair, that's where they, and the court says, get out of here. Okay, that's where a lot of them start. And provide the kind of precedent that now you're trying to have to deal with and try and argue against, right? That kind of thing for dress codes. Okay. So different kinds of fact scenarios, sort of a, a, a gender policing, I would say. Um, and again, you heard Sarah mention that OCR interprets Title IX to cover this kind of behavior. So recently, this is, um, uh, a case was threatened, how's that? So would we say the stick is, the carrot or the stick and it's, and it's working? Um, so this is a school district in Virginia that was going to pass a dress code. The original version said, no, uh, it prohibited any clothing worn by a student that is not in keeping with the student's gender which is probably not what they meant. They probably meant assigned sex, right? Just sort of they out-clevered themselves. Um, and causes a disruption or distracts others from the educational process or poses a health or safety concern. So the uh, Virginia ACLU got involved. They challenged this as discriminating against students based on gender stereotypes. And the school board dropped the reference to gender-conforming attire but kept the language on disrupting or distracting others. So how that will be, and that they were ready to file a suit. It was very clear the ACLU was ready to file a suit, but they didn't need to, right? Because Barrett sent that to Josh. <laughs> okay. Um, yearbook, here's a yearbook case, a recent case. A student who identifies as female but feels more comfortable in traditionally masculine clothes, is how the court phrased this, brought suit over her yearbook picture. So male students wear tuxedos for their yearbook pictures, and female students wear drapes, which I assume is sort of a lovely, modest, kind of little cape-like number, okay? She did not wish to wear the lovely, modest, cape-like number, wore a tuxedo, and they didn't put her picture in the yearbook. And no picture in the yearbook for you. Um, she brought multiple claims. The court noted on the Title IX sort of impact part of this, the court noted that the Department of Agriculture, which gave money to the school district, um, interpreted Title IX as prohibiting discrimination against any parent person in the application of rules of appearance, but that that regulation that I mentioned before had been revoked so the court said, moving forward, you must address this inconsist inconsistency. The motion to dismiss was denied, brought by the school district, was denied. That's the last I could find. So I'm tempted to, well, they probably sound right. I'm tempted to call them and say, hey, what happened? Prom, lots of dress code stuff about prom. Lots and lots. Women being um, kicked out, female students, being kicked out of prom because their dresses are too revealing. Um, there was one very publicized case last year in Utah where she, she had to wear a jacket over the dress she had bought in Paris and had altered to meet the dress code standards. 
because it didn't meet dress code because you could see her shoulders. So she was she had to wear a jacket over her dress at prom. Okay, so this prom, this court is, it's really this court lagging behind is trying very hard. The court describes the plaintiff as a transgender homosexual male and refers to her as him throughout the decision. Um, so she wore girls clothes all throughout the school year, supported by her teachers and colleagues. The school is well aware of this. Um, met with the assistant principal who said, yes, you may wear a dress to prom. <laughs> the principal said, I think you should wear a lady's pantsuit instead of a dress if you want to wear girls clothes. And there's just the whole thing about it's girls clothes, right? That's the whole underlying problem. Wears a dress to prom. The principal literally bars the entrance to the site um, and won't let her in. She goes to the parking lot. Half of prom comes out to the parking lot in support. Okay, this goes forward. Brings, among other claims, a Title IX claim. <coughs> files, files the lawsuit, right? There is actually a lawsuit. Settled in 2011. Um, Lambda Legal was counsel for this case. Settled in 2011 with changes to the dress code and training for school board and administration on LGBT issues. So again, these are very, these are treatment cases, right? I've decided that you're a boy and you can't wear a dress. Okay, treatment cases. All right, um, what about impact? So for a school situation, so we're looking for that facially neutral, hey, don't disrupt anybody with your clothing, right? Facially neutral requirement that has a disproportionate impact on a protected class. The defense is that you have to have a substantial, legitimate justification. If that's shown, then the plaintiff has a chance to show an equally effective alternative practice. There's no need to show intent. You don't have to show intent. Okay, what about impact under Title IX? Sarah tells us that it's a valid claim, right? Uh, not Sarah, sorry, the OCR tells us, <laughs> through Sarah, that it's a valid claim. Um, the DOJ, the Department of Justice Manual, tells us that impact is a valid claim. Some courts say yes, but lots say no, that it's not a valid claim under Title IX. So, just talking about what it means, a substantial legitimate justification for your neutral policy that has a disparate impact it has to be demonstrably necessary to meeting an important educational goal. There must be educational necessity for the practice, okay? Educational necessity for the practice. So trying to bring an impact claim. First, we say, yay, the DOJ manual says that there's impact under Title IX, um, but it also says that it's not intended as an enforcement guide for elementary and secondary schools. The majority of the citations in the DOJ manual are actually to Title VI cases, which prohibits race discrimination in entities receiving federal funds, not just educational institutions, but any entities. And then the bigger oh-no is that in 2001, the Supreme Court held there are no impact claims under Title VI, which the manual is based on. Um, but wait, there's hope. Uh, recently, the Supreme Court upheld an impact claim under the Fair Housing Act. It did restrict it in what you have to prove, it lessened the burden on the defense side, 
but um, there's a little bit of hope maybe to deal with Sandoval there. All right, so girls distracting boys. There's a, you know, what do we do when we're upset about a social wrong and we're 12? We take to Instagram, okay? Uh, and we take to Twitter. Um, so there is a I am more than a distraction campaign. I have to say that um, I was just looking at sort of pictures um, that I had seen. There's a group of middle school girls wearing t-shirts that say I am more than a distraction and the A is big and bright red. I'm like, how could you not love these politically active literary students? I love it. So anyway, um, so again, we're talking about we're talking about the enforcement and resulting discipline. We're not actually talking about the clothes themselves. So it's gender neutral. Let's look at you cannot disrupt or distract, right? It's in the enforcement. It's in the explanation of you are distracting boys. It's wildly, apparently heteronormative, right? You're distracting the boys. You're not distracting anyone else. You're distracting the boys. And all the boys are distracted by you. Um, so is there a claim? So the first problem for a gender new, uh, uh, impact claim would actually be how are we going to get this evidence, right, to prove a prima facie case that in enforcement more girls are sent home than boys, okay? Um, I don't know if administrators keep records of how that, who gets sent home. Um, otherwise, we are relying on the seventh grader to tell me that Tegan got dress coded and sent home. Right, so that's the first problem. But I think if you can get past the, um, if you could prove a prima facie case, I think it would be difficult to argue the educational necessity of sending the girls home because they're distracting the boys. I think there would be an equally effective alternative explanation, which would be pay attention to your math. Right, not Susie over there in her spaghetti strap. Right, um, that's so. I think I think it can be. Don't know if it would actually. I hate. Told my husband last night. I'm like, oh, I think I gotta say. I'm not sure it would work in court, but I think it's enough of a stick carrot, carrot on a stick that um, it can help, and we can help educate uh, the administration. Uh, so one last thought when we talk about sort of what we expect uh, women and girls to wear is that it was never a dress. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I have to say. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ann, very much. By design, we have some time for questions. Uh, so I'm happy to open the floor for folks who have any questions they want to chime in. Um, although, knowing that this is a lot like law school, right, where only the professors are sitting up front, um, I guess I can start. Uh, and I'll tell you that after hearing um, Anne's presentation and hearing about those cases, I'm, of course, immediately tempted to talk about the deep injustice uh, on the um, hair length. But that, um, that, that may not be the point. Actually, what I'm, what I'm going to do is I want to exercise uh, my prerogative of, of both tenure and a curmudgeon uh, and, and, and ask a question. Uh, perhaps I'll start with, with Josh. Couldn't critics argue uh, yes. that 
trying to do is really drifting far afield uh, from what Title IX was all about when it was originally passed. And in fact, and I thought of this, this question in advance, but your comments prompted me really to, to go with it, where you talked about how this landscape is developing very much based on societal, the evolution of societal views in this general area, where of course the language of Title IX and its legislative history stays where it was. Is, is this an appropriate vehicle, or maybe is this something where society has moved on? Changes in legislation is more appropriate. I think it's so funny. You can say it's moved far afield, or you can say that the understanding of it has evolved. It depends on which side of the uh, argument you're on. Um, I, don't, I don't think Title IX is any different from any other law in that regard. You know, Congress passes a law. There's words in it. Those words have to be interpreted. They put... Uh, they, in the statute and in the whole way that our government is structured, they've assigned an agency to interpret and, and write regulations and to enforce. And uh, the only changes that are really happening, I mean, the, the changes, the, if Congress had never had said, we never want the definition of sex to change ever throughout the life of this statute, they could have done a lot better job in defining what that means, and they didn't. I have to think that they understood on some level, and again, assigning intent to a body like Congress is a, a, an exercise that we like to do in law school, but in real life, uh, no congressman was harmed in the making of that law. It was all of their little <laughs> clerks that were sitting there <laughs> writing it. Um, they had to understand that something like this was going to evolve over time. It certainly had with, with race. It certainly had with uh, other forms of discrimination. and. Um, if they didn't understand that uh, societal views about sex would change and what sex meant would change, um, well, lucky for us, uh, they were wrong. Um, and so, no, I don't think no, I don't think that any other law is necessarily needed for this. Um, to, I think that the way we, the process that we have in place right now, which is that you have courts that interpret what this means, you have. Um, agencies that interpret what this means. That's the democratic process that, that was in place when the law was passed. And um, while it's slow to be uh, catching up to society's views of it, um, that is something that's a great part of the American legal tradition. Um, our views about race certainly is a good example of that. Um, if we had waited for Congress to perfectly refine and define its laws, um, then we wouldn't have a lot of the changes that we that we had with uh, with racial discrimination either. So I think it's all. I don't think this is um, lawyers run amok or uh, courts run amok. I think the courts actually have done a really uh, deliberate and 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 solid job balancing the interests here. It's very very hard to bring these cases and to win them. This is uh, this is not an easy area where you can just walk in and say, ah, they used the word bitch. It's it's sex discrimination, give me a million dollars. It doesn't work that way. Um, the, there is still plenty of societal regulation of what these terms mean and what they don't mean. That's why we see such wild differences in, in legal decisions throughout the country. Um, so I think this is really just, this is how American law works. Um, it's no different in, in than any other area that uh, touches upon uh, a construct like, like race or gender or, or things like that. Um, and so I think it's perfectly in keeping with a, a long tradition of, of jurisprudence and litigation um, in, our, in our system. I don't think it needs, 
it's, it's not really different than any other type of legislation in that way. All right. Any other thoughts on my curmudgeonness uh, from the other members of the panel? Yeah, I mean, I get that question a lot. A lot. A lot more than you would think. Um, and I think there's there are two sort of two ways that I think about it. One is absolutely what Josh was saying. We have a long tradition of um, generating whether they're constitutional rights or you know or other other things from sort of the landscape of our laws in this country. Um, you know, we don't have to quite get into penumbras and emanations, but I think you know where I'm headed with this, right? That we we have a tradition of deciding that if we protect these particular interests and we protect these other interests and there are other, you know, that there's a third set of interests that are always kind of implied. You know, and, and what I will say, um, in addition to that, is that I think this is the problem we've run into because we have this jurisprudence of lists, right? We sort of make these lists of people who are entitled to things instead of making laws which are, you know, thoroughly inclusive. Um, and I think this is actually our good conscience as a society acting on that jurisprudence of lists and creating rights for people where, you know, your basic humanity tells you, you know, these youngsters should have access to their education, they should be treated well, and they should be treated fairly. Um, and I don't, I guess I don't think of that as being uh, maybe the bad kind of judicial activism. I think of that as kind of living up to what I believe are really our, our, our intentions um, in our government, you know, throughout, throughout history. But yeah. I've never been asked that. <laughs> but I think we're right where we should be. <laughs> All right. Um, yes, sir. I'd like to ask the first speaker about uh, the extent of Title IX within the educational system. Specifically, uh, I'm interested whether it extends to faculty. Uh, one of the things I've seen the past few months, I guess, a lot of studies showing that student evaluations of faculty that are used for promotion, tenure, retention uh, are inherently biased. That there have shown that particularly bias towards women, although also people of color and whatnot. Uh, I'm wondering whether, if that is the case, and if those sorts of things are being used extensively anymore for retention, promotion, and whatnot, uh, what is Title IX covering? So, Title IX does cover faculty generally. Um, uh, it covers students, employees, and third parties. The actions of the, the district or school would be responsible for the actions of third parties. So, so yes. Um, and uh, I guess to say, you know, in theory, that that yes, that someone could. I would think that that it's possible that a claim could be stated. So, um, what the idea would be that the way the evaluations are written are inherently biased and discriminatory towards female faculty, and that they is that what you're. What you're saying? Uh, I mean, I don't just there's so many ways to make a claim that like I I think it's possible. Well, no, I don't. Okay. I don't, I don't know whether or not they're inherently written that way, but the question would be the actual effect of them and whether or not then if the administration was aware that you know any reasonable analysis of these shows that they're Yeah, I, and I think that it could be, yeah, that there's a discriminatory impact, the way they're written, um, faculty member made the administration aware of that, the administration failed to take steps, I mean, yeah, like, possible. Just as almost anything is possible under Title IX. 
Well, it sounds like I, it sounds like an impact, maybe relying on right evaluations. Right, so we give evaluations, and and by relying on evaluations, it is potentially based on the information having a negative impact on female faculty because. The comments and evaluations are things like one of my colleagues once got, and this is right, comments, deeply insightful, she's pregnant. <laughs> and that I, I think was a negative, like she was teaching class while pregnant. Um, but you could have comments like grades too harshly, right? Isn't, isn't open enough for office hours. And we don't know if actually it's exactly the same as the male colleagues, we just expect the female professors to be different. So relying on that sort of neutral student evaluation process um, could be a, an impact violation. The other thing I was thinking, because I also teach employment discrimination, is when we know there's overtly biased comments in the evaluation, then the employer, in this case the university, should take steps to not rely on them because if they're based on stereotypes, based on gender roles, and then we rely on them, that can be a lot, that can be sexist. Other questions? Yes, please. I have a question about um, what you're looking for when you're either trying to resolve a case or where you're talking about damages, like in the private sector. So there's the one end where you just sort of want to be the, make the social impact that you've educated the school board, you've educated the principal. But for that student now who's bullied, who's outed, um, who isn't comfortable going back to school anymore, you know, is there sort of the second half of that settlement where yes, you've taken on the educational role, but that student really is not going to go back to that school and get a beneficial education. So from the private sector, when you're looking at damages, you know, what is it that you're specifically targeting? Are you looking for psychological counseling? Are you looking for tuition to now go to the private school because you can't get her out of that district? Um, you know, what are we really looking for when we're talking about settling or trying to resolve these claims? Well, I can tell you that from my experience that um, it depends, it varies from client to client. Um, I always ask them, what are you looking to get out of this, and what is your goal? Very commonly, these are, I mean, these are not a random group of people. These are people who are coming because their kid has experienced horrendous discrimination and harassment, and in many of those cases, they don't want their kids attending the school anymore. And so part of what we're looking for in a resolution, yes, is the ability to send the student to, to another school in some cases, in which case there's tuition that goes along with that, and that's money. Many of these kids need therapy, many of these, you know, all kinds of help. Um, but not everybody, that's not necessarily gonna be everybody's goal, like you mentioned. There are some people, an amazing number of people, my clients are better people than I am in many cases. They come to me with uh, situations where their kids have been treated appallingly. And what they really, really want is for the, the culture of the school to change. And as a lawyer, on the one hand, that's very heartening, that's very encouraging, it's, it's inspiring. On the other hand, it's also um, it's frustrating because I know that the law is a very poor tool for forcing institutions to change their cultures. Um, that desire to change has to come from the school community. Um, so sometimes what they want is awareness, education, some kind of program in the school that was mentioned um, in one of your slides. Um, 
a wide variety of things like that. Um, when kids have been physically injured and hurt, there's, there could be medical issues, but for the most part, um, the, the people that, that I have worked with um, are, are looking for justice in the sense they're looking to be vindicated. They want their kid, and, and many of them will say, I want my child to know that like, if you, you have to stand up for what is right, and that um, we need an acknowledgement from somebody that what was done to you was wrong. Um, sometimes that's in the form of an apology, which is almost impossible to get. People, it seems to me that sometimes people would rather pay millions of dollars than say I'm sorry. When in, in the case that I mentioned, there wouldn't have been a case if they had said they're sorry on day one. Um, so th that tends to be where people are coming from for, for us. Um, there's an interesting practical side to that question though, which is when somebody goes to a private bar lawyer for help with this as opposed to a nonprofit organization, the question is gonna be, is this a case we can even afford to take on? Because it's a plaintiff side case, people are not paying hourly for plaintiff side representation, and is, it, uh, is there gonna be any way that the lawyer can get paid on this at the end um, as a percentage of a recovery? What if what they're looking for is not money? These are not things that we like having to ask ourselves, but as a practical matter, it is a question. You could do it pro bono, but not everybody can afford to do that. Not every lawyer can afford to, to get involved in litigation like that and spend hundreds of hours of work that they're never gonna get paid for at the end. So there's a range of damages that we're looking for from a, uh, in terms of what would make it viable for us to do it, that's really gonna depend on what else is on our plate at the time. But in terms of what, whether we can even get that remedy from, uh, we can get a lot more through negotiations than we can from a court. Um, and we always try to come up with some kind of resolution that will meet those, meet those goals. I have yet to meet somebody, seriously, maybe every lawyer says this, but I seriously have not yet had a client that said, what we want is as much money as possible to make those suckers pay. That's not happened yet. Um, I would understand that. That's probably how I would feel if this had happened to my kid. But um, mostly it's, we want her out of there, and uh, we want them to acknowledge that what happened was wrong, and we don't want it to happen.